The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoic Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today, we continue our project that we started yesterday, which pertains to the video entitled The Case Against the Jedi Order by the YouTube channel Pop Culture Detective, who criticized the philosophy of the Jedi Order in George Lucas's six Star Wars movies and associated it with Stoicism. So yesterday we examined a uh, some dialogue from Yoda, which reflected something that is a either a misrepresentation of Stoicism or a, a valid criticism of Epictetus' Stoicism. Today we're going to look at a snippet of dialogue from Obi-Wan Kenobi in episode Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, and it's one line, but we're going to kind of divide it into two. So here is the line as de- as delivered in the movie. Uh, this is when, again, spoiler alert, you've had your time to watch the movie. It's been out for decades, okay? So this is when Luke first realizes that Leia is his sister, and Obi-Wan Kenobi says to him, Bury your feelings deep down, Luke. They do you credit but they could be made to serve the Emperor. Okay, so let me repeat that in case the audio didn't come out. Obi-Wan says, Bury your feelings deep down, Luke. They do you credit, but they could be made to serve the Emperor. So we're going to split this in half. The first half, bury your feelings deep down, Luke, that is exactly what we criticized yesterday. Okay, and that is the bad form of stoicism where you are repressing or suppressing or denying your feelings. And he's literally telling Luke, Take your feelings and bury them. Okay, again, this is not uh, this is not the stoicism that I value or that I practice. Uh, whether this is what Epictetus is striving for, I think remains to be seen. You know, when he says that you should relate to the prospect of a child or a wife dying the same way you relate to the prospect of an earthenware pot breaking. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't think most human beings would relate to those in the same way. So, so is he saying that you should really suppress the, and bury those feelings, or does he have some other route? Let's leave that for now. But as I mentioned yesterday, uh, I'll quote this again. Seneca in letter number nine says that the difference between the stoic wise man and the cynic wise man is he says, our ideal wise man feels his troubles, but overcomes them. Their wise man does not even feel them. And then in letter number 71, Seneca also says, uh, the subtitle of this is On the Supreme Good. Seneca says, I do not withdraw the wise man from the category of man, nor do I deny to him the, the sense of pain as though he were a rock that has no feelings at all. I, I don't think there is a clear statement um, uh, of uh, refuting the common notion of, 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 of you know, stoic apathy than that sentence. He's literally saying that, that he does not expect people to deny their pain uh, like a rock, okay? But the question does remain, you know, what about this trend in stoicism that does seem to to talk about not feeling the sense of pain and suffering that most people usually feel? So, uh, you know, what is that? And and, uh, and is that is that does that make sense? Is it possible? So I really wanted to read this whole letter of uh, number 71 on the Supreme Good because Seneca does a good job explaining it, but he, he does it in a very wordy way and he uses terms that aren't really so um, readily understandable to people in our culture. So I, I'm going to read an excerpt from this book entitled Stoic Serenity, A Practical Course on Finding Inner Peace by Keith Seddon, who is uh, the same translator I use for Epictetus, uh, for his Incarvidian. And uh, he has in the span of this one paragraph a really good summary of uh, of of what 
what it means to be free from passions uh, in, in the Stoic sense. Okay, so he says like this. Stoics maintain that only the virtues and virtuous acts are genuinely good, while only the vices and vicious acts are genuinely bad. Other sorts of things are usually held to be beneficial or harmful, or neither, are the indifference. Okay, and, and I got to spell that out so you can see. Indifference, I-N-D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-S. So indifferent, plural, okay? So these are the indifference. These are things such as health, wealth, possessions, status, relationships, physical beauty, intelligence, sickness, poverty, lack of possessions, lack of status, few relationships, ugliness, dimwittedness, etc. Some indifference are preferred, some dispreferred, and some neither, such as whether someone has an odd or an even number of hairs on their head. Stoics pursue preferred things not because they are good, but because it is appropriate for human beings in virtue of the nature of the world and in virtue of the sort of creature that we are to do so. Thus, it is appropriate to prefer health, for instance. What results from virtuous acts and from vicious acts is not respectively good or bad, but is preferred or dispreferred. Okay, and I guess I should read one more paragraph here. He says, um, for the Stoics, then, all passion is inappropriate because having any passion can occur only in the circumstance that the agent has an attachment to something that can be only properly preferred or dispreferred. Failing to get or to preserve what is preferred cannot constitute a good, and getting or enduring what is dispreferred cannot constitute a harm. Okay, so this, I think, allows us to make sense of Epictetus's thing about the earthenware vessel breaking and comparing it to the child or the wife dying, okay? So the way Epictetus made it sound is like, you're going to feel equally the same uh, when an earthenware vessel breaks as when a, a loved one dies, because what did you expect was going to happen, okay? Um, again, I don't know what Epictetus means by that, but I can tell you what I think Seneca means. So what Seneca is saying is that the only true good and bad is virtue and vice, which really amounts to how you use your will, right? What your choices are. And whether your earthenware vessel breaks or whether your your loved one dies, since that is not something that is dependent on your will, it is not truly good and bad, okay? But that also doesn't mean that it's neutral. It doesn't mean that you should be indifferent to whether someone you love dies or, or, or lives. That's where the concept of preferred or, or dispreferred indifference comes in, meaning that a Stoic would prefer to be, so health, let's say, let's talk about health. Health is not good or bad in the sense that health is not dependent on your, your, your virtue or vice. You could be totally virtuous and be unhealthy or totally vicious and, uh, and be, you know, um, sorry, you'd be totally, what did I say? You could be totally virtuous and sick or be totally vicious and, and healthy. Okay. So you can't call health good or bad, but but would a Stoic prefer to be healthy? Of course he would. He would love to be healthy because being healthy is is conducive to a uh, a life where you can more readily exercise virtue. And same thing with war or with poverty is a Stoic would prefer not to confront war or poverty because it makes it much more challenging to exercise virtue and avoid vice. So... This, I think, is really what he means when he says that you're free from passions in the sense that that you don't get caught up in things that are outside of your control to feel like you suffered a bad or obtained a good when something external to you, you know, goes your way or doesn't go your way. Because the only real good and bad are your virtue. But you still desire 
the preferred indifference. You still desire health and wealth and and uh, and you know the well-being of your loved ones and such, and you would prefer not to have the opposites. Okay, that's something I guess we could elaborate on a, on, a, on a future episode. But I, I think that's going to be the key to understanding um, uh, how the stoic person can feel things and yet uh, maintain the stoic ideal of not being overly attached to things outside of his control as being good or bad. Okay. Uh, let's think about that for a while. Okay. That's uh, the, the, just one thought I want to get onto the next part here. So the next thing is Obi-Wan says um, that your feelings do you credit, but they can be made to serve the emperor. So again, this is, this is uh, an expression of the same sort of like panic domino effect view of emotions that Yoda expressed in, uh, that we talked about in the previous episode is like, Obi-Wan is saying feelings are bad because they can go the wrong way. Well, what's Judaism's attitude towards this? So I'm going to quote you two um, sides of the same idea. The one that people are familiar with, one that people are not. Okay. The one people are familiar with is that you should serve Hashem with all of your heart and with both of your in- inclinations. Your Yitzhah Tov and your Yitzhah your good inclination and your bad inclination. So again, Judaism does not maintain that you should eliminate your evil inclination, nor does it advocate burying it, like Obi-Wan says. Rather, you should harness it, you should sublimate it, you should redirect it towards the good, okay? Because it's a part of you, and you can't get rid of it. It's a part of you. Um, but what you can do is you can channel it to the good. So that's the version that that I think is, is quoted that people are more familiar with. The version that's a little bit more technical, but also more in line with the Stoic uh, approach is the Rabag in, he says this most clearly and most concisely in his introduction to Breshi's section eight. And yeah, he has sections. He doesn't have chapters. Uh, he divides it into eight sections. So this is really his introduction to what we would call Gan Eden, the Gan Eden story. So he says as follows, and I'll have to translate this after, I'll have to translate this into modern English after we read Rabag in English. It is already, he says, it has already been explained in Aristotle's On the Soul, 3.7, that the imaginative faculty and the emotive faculty are the causes of motion in animals, be it moving towards an object or away from it. This occurs when the imaginative faculty generates a certain image of a perceptible thing, which causes the emotive faculty to move the animal towards this representative image or to flee from it. Since it is in this manner that a person can be drawn after the physical pleasures, which remove him from his proper course of development, the emotive faculty is the Yitzhar Hara, and the imaginative faculty is its guide. It is therefore clear that the imaginative faculty can function in two separate frameworks— either as an instrument utilized in man's development or as an instrument which removes him from his path of proper development. Okay, so let me just state this in English and then give uh, an example that I think will illustrate it. So he's talking about two faculties of the soul. One is the imaginative faculty, which is the part of us that can form impressions of things and, uh, and you know manipulate those impressions and those images at will. And then the other is the emotive faculty, which is the part of us that draws us towards something or away or repels us from it. And he's saying basically that the emotive faculty is the Yitzhahara, is the evil inclination, and the imaginative faculty is its guide. But he's saying that you can use the imaginative faculty in two ways. You could either use it to towards your perfection and development, or you could use it or or it could be used as an obstacle. So the best example I've heard of this is from Rabbi Sachs. This is not Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. This is um, the YBT Rabbi Yoni Sachs, my Chumash Rebbe. Um, who said that if you see an apple fall, let's say an apple falls from a tree. So you'll get one person who says, oh, look, it's food. I'm hungry. I will eat it. 
You got another person who says, oh, look, it's a commodity. I will collect these apples and sell them. You got another person who says, oh, there's an apple. Uh, it's a projectile. It's a weapon. I can throw it at my enemy, Susie. And then you have Isaac Newton, who sees the apple fall and he says, ah, this is an example of a body in motion. And from that, he looks at the apple falling. I know that's that's a, a apocryphal story, but he looks at the apple falling and then he looks at the moon and he comes up with a theory of gravity. OK, so what's the difference between the first three people and uh, Isaac Newton? The first three people are using their imagination. They're taking this sense perception of the apple falling, retaining it in their mind and then manipulating it and thinking of what they could do with it. But they're thinking of what they could do with it in an animalistic framework. I can eat it. I can sell it. I can I can use it as a weapon. Isaac Newton, though, is is seeing it, preserving it in his in his imagination and memory, and then using his imagination as a tool to gain insight into into the chachma, into the wisdom of 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 God in in the creation. So, so they're both 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 groups of people are using their imagination, and they're both using their their yitzhar their They're both using their emotive faculty. They're being drawn towards something, uh, towards the image of something in their mind. But the first group of three people is doing it. Uh, they're doing it as an animal, uh, and their mind is really in service of whether either either their mind is not active or their mind is in service of their animalistic part of themselves. Whereas Isaac Newton is harnessing his feelings and his imagination towards the good. And I think this is really what Obi-Wan's mistake is, is he's basically saying that emotions are bad because they are subject to being um, influenced by the emperor, made to serve the emperor. What Judaism says is no. I mean, yes, emotions can be harnessed for evil, but it can also be harnessed for good. And rather than burying our feelings, then Judaism would advocate that we we get to know them and find ways to harness them and sublimate them and use them uh, towards the good. So that is another mistake that Obi-Wan is making. And again, I think I, I, I again, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of, uh, of Epictetus and what exactly his view of the emotions is. But from what I've read of Seneca, Seneca definitely uh, is very, very in line with getting in touch with your feelings in order to be able to know how to properly frame them uh, for, for the sake of the good. So, that's what I got to say about that for now. Maybe this series will continue in the future when we have more uh, material to critique, but for now, that'll be it. That's it for today's episode. If you have gained from what you've learned here today and would like to support my production of even more Torah content, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Link is in the description. Thank you to my listeners for listening, and thank you to my patrons for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.